0: morning Good morning everyone. Welcome to Lifebridge. Thanks for being here. Uh, yeah, so church is about more than just gathering together. Uh, we certainly do gather together and we love being together. Um, but one of the things that we find in church and in community, which we've been talking about throughout this campaign, is how we find purpose beyond ourselves. Because if you're like me, you tend to think about yourself probably too much and kind of get into your own head. Church is a, uh, a great place to demonstrate our love for other people and to think about others and their need and how we can love and care and serve them. So welcome. Thank you. For joining us this morning. Uh, My LifeBridge, if you're not familiar with My LifeBridge yet, I would encourage you to like uh, bookmark this, save it on your home screen, on your phone. This is where you can get information about what's going on here at LifeBridge Church. You can get upcoming events. Our calendar is on there. Sermon audio and devotional audio is on there. You can uh, give online through My LifeBridge or sign up for email and text updates. Uh, it's all at mylifebridge.church. So if you're on if you're on that, you all are here, so you probably got the text message to remind you of daylight savings. So you're here on time. Well done. Either that or you just use your phone, which is what I do. What's that? Oh, you meant to come at nine and you showed up an hour late and awkwardly sat in your car. Or I told first service if somebody shows up at 10 to just point and laugh. We don't we don't need to do that, okay? We need to be a loving community and care for people when they come in. Honest mistake, it happens. Somebody shows up at 11.30. It's a little embarrassing, though. All right. Giving, thanks for, thanks for your giving and for your generosity. Uh, we believe at LifeBridge that we're called to be generous. So we try to model this as a church, but as individuals as well, we are called to be generous with our time, our talent, our treasure, with all that we have. And generosity is really, really important. So we, we try to model this as a church by being generous and giving, and we encourage you to do so as well. You can give online. You can give through Venmo. Uh, or super hip and cool like that, Venmo giving. Like I don't think we have the like thing where you can just scan it and give at the box. That's not. Maybe someday, um, giving boxes as well. Cash or check at the be- at the beginning of the hallway here. Those black boxes on the wall or out in the lobby as well. So thank you for your generosity. And the reason I'm doing uh, the welcome this morning is to talk about our life-changing community conference, which starts today so we bookend the conference week with guest speakers so today we have a guest speaker uh, and this whole week we have stuff going on here at church and you can find more info on it at lifebridge.church conference Sunday, today we have a guest speaker. Next week we have a guest speaker as well. Today we're joined by Libby Thorngate, who I'll introduce in just a moment. And next week we have a guest speaker, Stephen Costello, who is coming to speak with us and also do our Saturday morning workshop on mission and how we can be a missional community that serves our community and reaches out to our community by living missionally. And then Tuesday through Thursday night, we have uh, courses or uh, soul care night on Tuesday night Tuesday we have soul care night and we're talking about forgiveness. Soul care is an opportunity to kind of unplug, to come and have a meal, share a meal together and to discuss at a table about forgiveness and how forgiveness is important for our soul to how we connect with God and connect with one another. Uh, Forgiveness is absolutely vital for that. So come and join us for that and then we'll do a time of worship and singing as well. And then on Wednesday and Thursday night, we have courses. We're calling these 101 courses. We have Ownership 101, both nights. Uh, ownership 101 is where we talk about the, the core of the gospel, uh, what the gospel is all about, and what our response to the gospel should be, and how we need to own our faith and take ownership of it, what those next steps need to be when we believe the gospel. So if uh, if you're curious about what the gospel is or about baptism and things like that, about salvation, what we believe about that, that'd be a great time to come. So that will be both Wednesday and Thursday night. Again, you can find this calendar all actually on the cards right in front of you or on your seat. If you're sitting on it, kind of shift around and you'll find it. There's cards sitting next to you too. You might be sitting on it. Yep. So the schedule is on there. Be sure to mark that down on your calendar. Um, and then Family 101 is the new one that we're offering this uh, through this campaign. We're talking about the biblical basis of family, what family is all about, how family is vitally important, and how, uh, how LifeBridge seeks to uh, work with parents to raise Christ-centered kids, and also how we try to support marriages as best we can. So mark those things on your calendar, and we have food and child care at all of the events this week, so remember our our rhythm throughout this whole campaign is for it 's like a twelve roughly twelve weeks usually, plus or minus a few weeks here and there. Uh, the idea is pretty bare calendar for most of those twelve weeks, but then this one week we just we kind of go all in so I'd encourage you to join us for what you can, and then the following week, the calendar will go dark, and it 's time to rest <laughs> and And we call that our calm week. So I encourage you to join us this week and mark that stuff down on your calendar. Would you pray with me? And then I'll invite Libby up. Lord, we thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your love for us. And Lord, we pray that you would be honored and glorified in our time here today as we open your word. And Lord, as we worship you together in community. So Lord, be praised, be honored, be glorified in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys welcome Libby Thorngate?
1: Hi. Good morning. It's always such a gift to be in my hometown with um, with this church. So thank you for welcoming me today. Um, I took a sabbatical in 2019 after spending 18 years in full-time ministry and just needed a break because I just spent 18 years in full-time ministry, and so I needed time to rest, I needed time to recover, and I also was trying to figure out what's what's the next step, what does the next chapter look like? I'd spent my whole adult life in this one specific form of ministry, so what, what was next for me? And um, it was a good time, but if you picture, when I say sabbatical, if you picture either like really quiet beach or a monastery somewhere, you know, a mountain retreat, nothing like that. I spent a lot of time with my dog. I read a lot of books, I spent more time with my dog, read more books, um, it was great. It was exactly what I needed. And one of the things I started doing was I started kind of playing with ideas of what might be next. So I was trying them on like outfits from the closet, you know, like, this might, oh no, that's not gonna work, you know, and I had all kinds of ideas, like I love coffee, so maybe I'll be a barista, because that's totally a practical career for someone approaching 40, or maybe I'll, uh Maybe I'll learn how to farm. I just want to get my hands in the dirt, you know, and just see things grow. Yeah, I had a very romanticized idea of that. I knew these things weren't going to work, but it was fine. I was on sabbatical. I could play, you know. Uh, my sister said to me, I think you should go into politics. The terrible idea. My husband said to me, I can really see you as like some kind of kick-butt executive. Well, executive of what? Executive of kicking butts. I don't know. It's fine. It's fine. And ultimately, you know, the Lord leads, mostly I just needed to rest. But one of the things, one of the outfits that I kept taking out and trying on again, you know, like maybe it's going to work this time, was the idea of becoming trained to become a counselor. Because I've always loved walking with people and seeing them grow. It's the thing that I loved the most in my time in full-time ministry. I was, you know, traveling the world, I was teaching, leading worship, but what I loved the most was just sitting down one-on-one, And seeing somebody grow. And so I started learning everything I could. And quite frankly, it was more than just wanting to know what my career was going to be. I really had some stuff that I needed to recover from. Because those 18 years in full-time ministry kind of put me through the ringer. So it wasn't just maybe this is something I can grow into. It was also really wanting to understand what I was experiencing myself as I processed that change. So I started learning everything I could about our minds and our brains and our bodies, the way they work together, the way God made us, you know. I was listening to podcasts, I was reading books, and one of the things that really stood out to me was the ways that our brains are actually interacting with each other. Isn't that interesting? And yet like I'm not being weird here, okay? Like if I were to come in this this morning and like just throw my things on the ground and like collapse on the front seat, and sit there with my arms crossed, my head down, my hair over my face, and you were to say, hey, Libby, how are you doing? And I were to say, fine. You would all know I was not fine, right? Because the nonverbal communication that was going on was letting you know nothing's fine, fine's a lie, right? And so there's this way that we are interacting all the time. There's even... I'm not going to try to explain, like, neurobiology, because I don't get it, all right? You don't become an expert by listening to podcasts, but here's something interesting that I learned. Um, Did you know that when you share a memory with somebody else, it actually changes how that memory is stored in your brain? So when you have a memory, when you remember something, the same neurons fire as when the event actually happened. But let's say I tell you a story of a really difficult thing I've experienced, really hard, really shameful. I tell you this story, maybe I've never told anyone before, and you look me in the eye, and rather than like, <gasps> oh, I can't believe that, you don't recoil. You don't tell me, uh, ah, uh, <laughs> well, uh, everything happens for a reason. But instead, you, you hear me and you offer care and empathy. You say, wow, that sounds really hard. I'm so sorry. That never should have happened to you. That's not your fault. Now, the way that memory is stored in my brain includes the memory of you engaging with me with care and compassion and love. Isn't that crazy? So I was learning things like that and nerding out all over the place. And one of the things that kept coming up over and over again didn't startle me. It startled me in its simplicity because one of the things I kept hearing from, from psychologists and authors was the power of relationship. And even like these, these like just insanely smart people where I'd read a paragraph and have to put it down, you know, would say simple things like, the most healing power in someone's life is safe relationship. And it stunned me, because here we've got, we, we understand more about the, how the brain works than ever before, we have incredible technology, all these creative, integrative therapies that didn't exist before, and yet the most healing thing is something that has always existed, something we've always had. That's crazy. I kept hearing it over and over again in different ways, kinda kept coming back to this same thing. We are wounded in relationship, but we're also healed in relationship. None of our pain or sorrow occurs in a vacuum, right? So it, it happens in relationship, and yet relationship always also carries this capacity for healing. And I was hearing this from Christians and non-Christians alike. So I'm hearing non-Christian genius psychologists say things like, you know, we, we don't exist in isolation. And I'm thinking to myself, that sounds super, super biblical. Like, there's this biological reality that really makes sense theologically too. It's almost like the, it's almost like the Bible makes sense. It's almost like the guy who made my brain knows how this thing works. So for instance, when, when we look at uh, Romans chapter 12, it says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's not just Paul saying, be polite, guys. Read the room, guys. But it's actually this really incredible healing reality when I enter into your grief or your joy. Or in the book of Hebrews, where we're told, do not forsake gathering together with one another. It's not the author of Hebrews saying, don't stop going to church like those other people, because then the devil's going to get you. But it's an exhortation for us to remain in those situations that are formative and transformative for our lives. It's really powerful. And of course, there is nowhere in Scripture that shows us this more clearly than the story of creation. In Genesis chapter 1, we have this big picture of the creation story, and it reads like a song or like a poem. God spoke, and then it was, and then... God said it was good, so light, rose bushes, sea otters, everything that is, God said, let there be, and it was, and then God said, it is good, and then we find the crown of creation where God says, let us make humankind in our own image, according to our likeness, so God created humankind in his image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. These are probably familiar words. I think you've probably heard these words in this series on community already. But it's got really huge implications for us. And I find it really helpful to consider this truth in two ways. First, this gives us identity. The fact that you and I were created in the image of God. That gives us identity because it means that you, that I, we have infinite value and dignity and worth. The fact that you were created in the image of God doesn't change, that can't go away. And it means that the truest thing about you is that you are deeply loved by God. It also means, by the way, that the truest thing about anybody you encounter on the street, they were created in the image of God, full of dignity, value, and worth. That's huge, isn't it? Doesn't that change? I mean, that changes how I feel right now, just saying it, and I wrote that down. It changes how we engage with the world around us. The second thing that we can understand from this truth, this is where we find our calling, our purpose. Because I'm created in the image of God, that's a static, you know, that's a a thing. It's unchangeable. It's also true That I am called to image God, to reflect who God is to the world around me. There are things about God I can never be. I'm never going to be all-knowing, even when I think I might be. I'm never going to be able to be in every place at once, even when that seems nice. But I can reflect God's truth, his beauty, his abundance, his creativity, his goodness, his justice, his life. That's who I'm called to be. That's who you're called to be. And so from this verse, we, we discover our identity and our purpose to live as those who are created in the image of God. That's beautiful, isn't it? I didn't make it up, it's, it's in the Bible. So God creates the first human being and then God says it is very good for the first time. And let's imagine what it would be like to be the first human being in a perfect world. There's no war, there's no pollution, there's no disease. There's no misunderstanding or conflict. Fruits and vegetables grow without blight. Animals coexist without fear. Everything is harmonious. Everything is beautiful and you get to walk and talk, commune with God with no fear, no shame. You're never like confessing sin to God because there is no sin, it's just perfection. It's beautiful. It's fragrant. It's exactly how it should be. And imagine this is the world that you live in, and about this perfect, harmonious world, God says that something is not good. That's shocking, isn't it? How could this be? And yet that's what we read in the next chapter. Now, it helps to understand that the first chapter is a a beautiful, poetic overview of the story of the creation. And then the second chapter goes back to the creation of humanity and gives us some specifics. So in chapter two, God says, it is not good for the human to be alone. I will make a helper that is perfect, compatible, suitable, just right. Wow. did God make a mistake? Is God like, oh, whoops. I thought we were good here. I forgot I should have made two of them. Now God did not make a mistake. I there's you know this is just my conjecture, okay? Just my opinion. I think that God wanted to make it so clear our need for others that he planned the story to play out this way. So, the thing that happens next is very familiar if you grew up with like children's bibles. You have those children's storybook bibles, they would it would always start with the garden, it would always start with Adam and Eve. They were usually like like light hair and green eyes, which is weird given where they were from, and there was always strategically placed shrubbery. And you've got Adam and Eve, and then, and then here, the next part of the story, God puts Adam to sleep, and takes out a rib. That's what we read about. Now, when I think of that, it's easy to think about anesthesia, scalpels, sutures, but that's not <laughs> what was happening. This is in, in a time before modern surgery, and written in a time before modern surgery. So we probably better understand that God just put Adam, put the first human in this deep sleep. And then God does this little operation. And I learned something new recently. Um, I've taught out of this particular passage of scripture for over, over a decade, multiple times a year. So I've spent a lot of time. This is one of my favorite parts of scripture. Spent a lot of time in it and I learned something new, believe it or not. Uh, Just a couple months ago one of the pastors at my church was teaching from this passage and pointed out that the Hebrew word for rib would be better translated as side. Now I'm as you have maybe picked up on, I'm kind of a nerd. So I thought, oh, I want to read more about that. So I don't know anything or very little about ancient Hebrew. I'm not an expert in that any more than I'm an expert in psychology, okay? So I like to learn from the experts anything I can, but I don't want to pass myself off as an expert. So I just learned from smarter people. And here's what I discovered, that the Hebrew word uh, is only used about anatomy this time in the Old Testament. And that the rest of the Old Testament, when this word is used, it's most often used as an architectural term, and always when there are pairs of things. So for instance, it's used when there is the north side of the altar and the south side, the east side of the tabernacle and the west side. It's used about twin doors, like, like those ones right there, when there's a matched set, two sides. Now that's, that's a little bit different than a rib, isn't it? And why does this matter? It matters for a lot of reasons, but the reason that I think we should focus on goes far beyond just marriage, gender, all of that. Now, people have taught from this passage about godly marriage for a long time for good reason, really good principles, but there's also something that is far more fundamental, far more essential that we need to understand, and it's this. We were not made to be alone. If you consider this This picture of a human being that gets split into a matched set, split into two pairs. There's something about that, right? There's something about how we were made, our need for connection, our need for relationship. And it's not just about romantic partnership. It goes so much deeper than that. God did not make anyone to be alone. It is not good for any of us to be alone. And we got to understand that because I think it's easy for us to think about relationship as something we can opt in and out of, you know, like I'd rather stay home tonight. Oh, there's a Super Bowl party. So that's, that's when I'm going to opt in, you know, or I opt in when I might really need something. And I don't like to think of myself as a person with needs, because if I have needs, that means I'm needy and I don't like the sound of that. If I have needs, it means my needs might not get met. And the reality is that we do have needs for others, and those needs sometimes are not met because we live in a fallen world. I mean, the perfect, the ideal would, of course, be that every single need we ever have gets met in these wonderful, harmonious, Christ-centered families and communities. That's what we've all experienced, right? Sin messes up a lot of things, but we cannot opt out of the way that God made us. One of the authors that I've really grown to appreciate, Kurt Thompson, he says this, we're all born into the world looking for someone who's looking for us. And when I think about that human being split into two, I'm like, wow, that resonates. He's not talking about finding the one. He's talking about how we were made and how the deepest human desire is for belonging. We desire to be known. It drives us, it terrifies us. It's who God made us to be. So what does it look like then? If that's the truth, if that is both a biological and a theological reality, what does it look like to live out this call to image God, to reflect the character of God to the world and to each other, how do we live that out? Well, we've got a whole book that tells us how we live that out, right? It's a book with, a, with two testaments, an old and a new, and we're not going to cover all of it today. But one of the stories that stood out to me as I thought about sharing this morning was the story of Job. Job is a, it, a, it's a book of the Old Testament, one of the oldest stories we have in Scripture. And Job was a wealthy man, a good man, and a respected man had 10 children, tons of property, and one day Satan destroys it all. Uh, His whole family is killed, all of his children are killed, his whole household destroyed, his, his flocks, his herds taken away, buildings crumble, it's all gone. And then Satan comes back and attacks his health, he's covered in boils, his wife comes to him and tells him, curse God and die, and she's gone too. So this is a miserable situation. We find Job at the end of chapter two sitting on an ash heap, which is powerful, right? Everything in his life just burnt down. He's sitting on the ashes. He's scraping his skin with pottery to find some relief. And then in verse 11, here's what we read. When three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. Their names were Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. No one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. So we see Job's friends being really excellent friends, because they show up. They show up for Job. They show up in three different ways, maybe more, but three that I'll highlight. They show up for him literally because they show up for him physically. They have to travel. I don't know how far. I I suppose I could have Googled that. But they, they had to travel. They had to go out of their way. They didn't just send a message by career. Hey, praying for you. Prayer hands emoji. They didn't send a gift and have it delivered. They went because they knew the power of simply being present with their friend in his grief. We live in this day and age increasingly disembodied lives. We work in front of computers, we have team meetings over Zoom. A lot of us have more social interactions online than in person. Technology isn't a terrible thing. There are a lot of things I love about it. It does have its place. I can can live stream a worship service from anywhere in the world in my pajamas, and then if I don't like the preaching, I can, I can duck out and go to another one, right? It's great that we have access to things, and yet, you were not created to live a disembodied life. You were not created, none of us were, for isolation. We can't opt in and out of actual, real, real-life relationships. It doesn't, doesn't work that way. We weren't made for that. We weren't made to be aware of every tragedy everywhere in the world all the time and carry that in our hearts and minds. It's too much for us. And when that happens, we can become so overcome, we can feel so helpless that we're paralyzed. We're paralyzed even from taking action to meet the needs of our own communities. We weren't made to live disembodied lives. We were created for relationship. And while that, you know, sometimes that is an encouraging text message or contributing to an online fundraiser, nothing takes the place of real embodied presence and relationship, especially when somebody's suffering. Job's friends lived in a time and a place where that was understood maybe a little bit better than we understand it now. And so that's what they did. They left their homes. They showed up. They also offered engaged presence, emotional presence. They show up and they wail loudly. They grieve with him, they weep with Job as he weeps. It's really powerful. We can all acknowledge that presence and proximity are not the same thing. They're not mutually inclusive. I can be in the room with you and be somewhere else entirely in my heart and my mind. Job's friends choose to show up with their whole selves. Job's friends don't watch from a distance as Job grieves. They engage with him and it costs them, right? Nobody wants to cry. I don't, I don't want to be sad. And yet they, they sacrifice their own you know, internal calm to be willing to offer real healing presence to Job. And they weep together. It's really, really powerful. They also offer hospitable presence, gracious presence. And I call it hospitable for this reason. They don't take up all the space with their own agenda of how to help Job. They sit and they wait. They're silent for a whole week. Can you imagine? They just sit in silence with Job. They don't tell him how he should feel. It would be easy, I think, to respond with like, well, Job, um, Have you tried this remedy for your skin issue? Hey, Job, I've got this book on marriage that maybe would help you and your wife. Hey, Job, I know a guy who can help you rebuild. Would you like me to call him? I'm not saying it. Probably all of us in this room are pretty good at showing up with the practicals. And that's a good thing. You show up with a meal when somebody's in need of a meal. We show up and, and offer tangible expressions of help, and that's really beautiful and good. But we can be uncomfortable when there's nothing we can do. We aren't always okay with offering only ourselves because only ourselves doesn't seem like enough. But here, Job's friends recognize, we can't fix this. We can't bring your kids back. We can't turn this around but we can give you the one thing that maybe you need the most. We can demonstrate to you by our physical presence that you are not alone, that you are not abandoned, and we can let that be enough. And so they offer hospitable presence, engaged presence, physical presence. Now, if you know the story, you know that it doesn't stay that way. And after a whole week of silence, Job finally speaks up. He, he gives voice to his bitterness of soul and his grief, and he goes on for a whole chapter, essentially saying one thing. It would have been better if I'd never been born. Now, is that factually true? I, you know. It's an uncomfortable thing when people voice the kinds of questions that hardship bring to the surface. That's a tough place to be in. Can we give that kind of space? And here's the thing. God's not afraid of that. When you read the Psalms, it's full of lament. It's full of, why God? And when I cry out, why God? God's not up there trembling like, oh, why? Uh, maybe, maybe I don't have it all together. Libby doesn't think I do. God's really secure. We, we, can't, we can't throw off his confidence by our questions. It's not God who has a hard time with them, it's us. Because nuance and complexity is a lot messier than black and white certainty. So Job's friends get real uncomfortable and for the next several chapters, they argue with him about why he's going through hardship and they essentially say, you probably sinned and did something to deserve this. Maybe you didn't know you sinned, but I'll bet you sinned, and it's pretty arrogant if you think that you don't deserve the kind of suffering you're experiencing. And this argument goes back and forth for so long that eventually Job just calls them miserable comforters. Have you ever experienced miserable comfort? It's possible I've been a miserable comfort before, comforter before. Now, what should they have done? Should they have just... Been silent for seven days. Heard, heard Job say, it would have been better if I'd never been born. And then say, well, see you later. Because that'd be real weird. What would it look like for us to show up and offer presence in a way that does bring healing and life that can look like Jesus? I have three guiding principles for us that I, I think can help us do that in a way that helps instead of hurts. And the first one is this. What if we were to show up with curiosity over certainty? Now we can be certain about a lot of things. I can be certain about the goodness of God. I can be certain about the reality of Jesus. But what Job's friends do is really what we do a lot as Christians. They offer pat answers. They were saying something not that different from when we say, well everything happens for a reason. Well, God works it all together for good. Well, you've got a really good testimony being built right now. That's not untrue. But sometimes we hurt more than we help when we can't pause and be curious about what's going on in someone's heart and also be curious about what it stirs up in my own to see they're hurting. Lots of uncomfortable questions come to the surface when we see this kind of hardship Can we have curiosity rather than black and white certainty? You see, all of us are still right in the middle of our stories, and we like to get all the way to the end where there's a happy ending and it's tied up with a bow. And we know that it's true that in the end, Jesus makes all things new because we're not there yet. And most of life is lived in the tension and the in-betweens and messiness and complexity. Can we sit with that? For others, can we sit with that for ourselves? If we do, we can offer greater care, especially when people are hurting. So curiosity over certainty, compassion over contempt. What would it look like to have compassion for our humanity, to have compassion for our weaknesses, our own and those of others? What would it look like to even look at those places of failure, even look at those places of sin, and still have compassion for the person God has made? What would it look like to to receive that ourselves? Because I don't know about you, the person who has the most contempt for me most days is me. And so I often need to see the mercy and kindness and patience of Jesus in the face of a friend. How do we show up for others with that kind of compassion? And to offer this kind of healing presence will require courage. It takes courage to show up at all. It takes courage to enter into messy, messy circumstances. It takes courage to allow for really tough questions without having to have a pat answer. It takes courage to respond with tenderness. To feel the grief of someone else ourselves. It also takes courage to speak truth. I am not a good friend. If I see you walking towards an open manhole staring at your phone and I don't say, hey buddy, heads up, right? I'm not a good friend. What does it look like to speak the truth that needs to be said even when it might not be received well? What does it look like to speak the truth that points us back to who God is, points us back to who God's made us to be? That's the kind of friendship that can show up with compassion, with courage, with curiosity, and really walk with people in some of the hardest seasons of life. That kind of presence is who God's called us to be. We make that prayer, Christ be all around me, knowing that Christ has drawn near. That Christ is here with us. That the greatest example of, of offering presence we can find is Christ coming, taking on human form, living among us, being with us. What would it look like this morning to welcome that presence? in a deeper way. There's no part of our lives that Jesus draws back from. There is no burden we carry that is too much for him. What does it look like to welcome him in to those spaces that we might want to keep hidden? Recognize that He moves toward us always with kindness, with compassion, with love. What would it look like to allow others to image Christ to us in that way? to allow others to move toward us, even to those darker parts of our stories, those heavier burdens that we carry, to allow others to move towards us and image the kindness, the compassion, and the care of Jesus. How can we welcome that? How can we show that to others? It will always have to begin by welcoming the presence of Jesus, by recognizing he draws near. He does not pull back, but draws near. Christ, you are with us. You have not forgotten us. Help us to welcome that from you, from others. Knowing that your nearness is our good.
0: We're going to go into a time of communion now and share communion together. The story of scripture is such that We who are unholy, who sin and do wrong, cannot be in the presence of a holy God. For those who enter into the presence of a holy God and are unholy, that means death. But because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, he has taken our unrighteousness, our unholiness upon himself. And died in our place. So that when our faith and trust is in him for our salvation, we can then be in the presence of God. That it wasn't that we could just be good enough to be made right. No. Jesus died in our place so that we could be made holy. His righteousness could be given to us by faith in him. So that we can dwell in the presence of God forever. So that our future, when we have our faith and trust in Jesus, our future is dwelling in the presence of God in the new creation for all eternity. That apart from Christ's forgiveness and his grace in making us holy, we cannot be in the presence of God. So we're going to remember that as we take communion together. The communion elements are on the back table. I'll go back there first, front rows, if you guys would follow me to the middle. Grab the communion elements and come back and have a seat. Hold on to them and we'll pray for them and take together. Would you pray with me first for the cup? Lord, we thank you for your blood that was shed for us. Lord, your blood that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Lord, that you have washed us. And you have made us clean and holy before you. Jesus, because you've died in our place. Lord, we know that our sin has separated us from your presence, but because of your blood that was shed for us, that we can be made holy. We can once again enter your presence, Lord, and commune with you. So Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. Let's partake of the cup together. you pray with me for the bread now Lord Jesus we thank you for coming to earth being made man for showing us who God is for teaching us who God is for showing us what a holy life looks like showing us how to live teaching us truth thank you for being God in flesh for us Lord, we thank you for bearing our sin in your flesh, for dying on the cross for us, taking the pain, the punishment that we deserved. Lord, you were holy, we are unholy. You are righteous and we are unrighteous, and yet you died in our place for us. There's no greater love than that. And so, Lord, as we hold this bread in our hand, we're reminded of your body that was broken for us, the pain that you endured for us, that you have entered into our space. Lord, you came to earth. You suffered. You grieved. You felt the pain that we feel. And you died in our place so that we might go free. We thank you as we partake of the bread together. Let's partake. Would you guys pray with me once more to close out the service? Father God, again, Lord, we are so grateful for your presence with us. That Jesus, you came to show us who God is. You came to dwell among us. And Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit whom you have given us. We guarantee the down payment, Lord, of our salvation. Lord, inspire us, move in us to give our presence to one another, to make those sacrifices, to meet each other where we are, to love one another, and to represent you, Jesus, to those around us. So, Holy Spirit, fill us, move us to compassion, to love, mercy, to kindness and goodness. May we be that type of community. Lord, may you form that within us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you guys need prayer, uh, Michael is in the back. He would love to pray with you. If not, thank you for being here.